Welcome to another edition of Cast, a weekly podcast that takes an honest and sometimes irreverent look at the state of open hardware, embedded Linux, and all things BeagleBoard. Hi, and welcome to BeagleCast. I'm one of your hosts, Jason Kreidner, and will be joined shortly by Gerald Coley and Jeffrey Ozier-Mixon. We'll be getting together weekly to discuss what's new in open hardware, embedded Linux, and all things BeagleBoard. We welcome your contributions by leaving us any questions or suggestions that you might have by calling 713-234-0535 and leaving a message, or by visiting http colon slash slash bit.ly B-I-T dot L-Y slash B-C suggest. Hey Jeff, uh, it's nice to finally get uh, caught up with you. Crazy month. Yeah, we've seen each other a few times, but this is the first time we've had a chance to get back on the phone and do the recording of, of BeagleCast. Yeah, I know. I know we we planned to kind of catch up and do that at some of the conferences we've been to, but it's been just just crazy. Did never plan to do anything at a conference. No, I, I did manage to get uh, uh, Greg Crow-Hartman, um recorded when I was at uh, the Collaboration Summit, so that was one good thing out of that that we'll get at for for BeagleCast. But uh, otherwise, uh, BeagleCast really suffered from the last month. <laughs> well, it's good. I can't wait to hear what Greg has to say. Cool. Well, let's uh, blast through the news so we can uh, get to that. Yeah. First up in the news, there's actually some BeagleBoards in stock at DigiKey this week. Right on. Yeah, Jordan let me know that, and that doesn't happen very often. They're usually... Um, People keep getting them, you know, order them, usually get them in a, in a week or two, uh, not the availability overnight. Which, uh, so I tweeted that, and they'll probably be gone by the time anybody actually looks at the website. <laughs> probably so. Did you did you see this uh, blog post about, um, or actually it was an article in, the Linux, in Linux for Devices about uh, 300 millisecond uh, BeagleBoard boot? No, that must have come through when I was at a, it was, it came through at, at ELC, during ELC. I hadn't seen this. 300 milliseconds, huh? 300 milliseconds. I think the, the that's question like, is... That's a blink. That's, yeah. Pretty short blink at that. Yeah. Wow. That's really impressive. I'm looking at the article right now. Not sure how useful it, it comes up to. The question that keeps getting asked to me is, well, in 300 milliseconds, you know, what have you actually initialized? Well, if it's a full kernel, I mean, you could add just a couple of interesting things to that, and you could actually do a, a boot a kernel from another kernel. So it could actually function as a bootloader. I think that I think that's a faster load than U-boot, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. Uh, U-boot loads pretty darn fast now. It's, I mean, yeah. It looks instantaneous to me when when U-boot loads, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know. It, yeah. With the with the the, the latest U-boot in, in mainline. Um, and I think what gets rec- uh, shipped with the uh, XM revision C's, the, even the load of the kernel off of the SD card happens in a in a blink. Hmm. But then beginning the execution and running of the kernel still takes several seconds. Yeah. But the the, the three second wait that's just for it to time out is essentially the whole time for 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 U boot. Uh, you know, once it uh, once it starts loading, it's you know, probably closer to one second than 300 milliseconds, but it's it's not uh, it's not very long at all. Oh, okay. 
And the idea that you actually loaded all the way into a kernel and executing some application code, that's, uh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's really amazing. Looks like it's just running BusyBox. Yeah, I don't think it's running much more than BusyBox. Yeah, but still, you know, it's a, a full environment. Yeah. I have to see if somebody gets a, a, a public repository that uh, reproduces that. Yeah, that would be really cool. Uh, if whoever's doing that is, who is it? Konstantin Schulpen. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> Nishant uh, Manon uh, pointed me this week to, to something pretty interesting where he's just got a busy box, a kernel, uh, U-boot, uh, just all pointing to, to, to mainline projects using um, one project using a git submodule. So I thought that was uh-huh. pretty interesting. He puts, it's even simpler than, than, than build root sort of a, approach to, to building yeah. a, a full file system that's just based on BusyBox. No kidding. That sounds interesting. Well, he's using that mm-hmm. to, to sort of test mainline, right? Just to get a to, to to get a really easy snapshot of testing mainline for the Beagle board and for other platforms. Yeah, is that uh, is there a link somewhere on there? Well, it's somewhere on GitHub. I can I can look that up and and add that to the show notes. Yeah, it might be really interesting to take a look at for people who work directly with mainline. I also saw an interesting announcement about an expansion board, uh, yet another expansion board for, for the Beagle board, this level one expansion. I'm just loading it up. What does it do? To operate two radios, either simplex or full duplex. Yeah, so it's coming from uh, the, the ham ham world. So this is a, um, a, a quick way to, to turn your, your Beagle board into a you know, packet radio type of device. It's very interesting. I'm going to have to forward this to some of the people on the Octo Project who are interested in packet radio. I know they do a lot with software-defined radio, but having a piece of hardware sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious. You know, I know that one of the, the, the guys, Philip Ballister, who's on the uh, open embedded uh, board as well as being in the, the, the Octo advisory board, does a lot with the software-defined radio and uses the, the Edis E100 board for a lot of his projects. I'm kind of curious yeah. how this, this compares to to that when you just use this uh, a, a daughter card for the Beagle board. Very interesting. I bet he'd be willing to test it. <laughs> Phil gave a Phil gave a good talk on software defined radio at uh, at Collapse Zone. Just a really brief lightning talk. So also at the the shows there was a um, so Beagle board was there at uh, the Embedded Linux conference and we had a table set up where we were demonstrating the the Capcan robot uh, this. Uh, uh, Gumstick's K- uh, Stagecoach, this uh, super jumbo thing from uh, Always Innovating. So uh, Gregoire Gentile of Always Innovating was there and gave a talk at uh, at ELC about how to run multiple operating systems at the same time on your Beagle board. So he was running Android at the same time as a modified Angstrom as well as uh, an Ubuntu build and even a Chrome OS. So we did one yeah, I saw that. That was really wild to see all those things running at the same time. Yeah, all the same time, not virtualized, all on the same kernel. Yeah, very, very weird. Well, and I have all the different screens. Oh, yeah, because what he showed there at the... Um, at the at the the conference was the the panda board running as well running multiple operating systems on different screens simultaneously on the same kernel. So the beagle board he shows it just it just toggling between the the, the screens 
uh, mm-hmm. the different operating systems running with the with the two video interfaces on the, the the panda board. He was actually showing both operating systems running at run, once and, and running both screens. Yeah, I was way in the back. I didn't get to see too many of the details up there. So I looked through that because uh, I was I was pretty interested in in how he was doing that, and it's it's a lot of what you would uh, expect. And I just imagine he must have spent a, a good amount of time going through and, and debugging all the different little system issues. So he's using Cheroot mm-hmm. for the multiple file systems. He had some some interesting approaches on on how to to share all the different file systems and to Cheroot to between them. Um, I remember right, he wrote a paper on this also. I haven't looked for it, but... Uh... I know that he's he's put the images up for download on the Always Innovating site. Yeah. I haven't seen the paper. I did see the, the presentation up on the elinux.org uh, wiki site that where all the, the ELC presentations are. Right. Uh, and that's where I was able to, to go through go through his presentation. I wasn't able to attend his his talk itself because I was giving the, the BeagleBoard hands on workshop uh, at that time. In fact I That's right. I told people when when the time came up, hey, you know, if you want to step out and um, go catch that uh, that talk, you know, feel free. It seemed like most most people stayed. It was a, a pretty full workshop. Yeah, I poked my head in and tried to count. I thought you had thirty five or forty people there. I think I only had it was really uh, nice thirty machines set up, so it was you know every every machine that could be utilized was being utilized. Yeah, and there were a few people standing in the back also. Very well attended. I was pleased. There was also a workshop there on um, wireless LAN hacking that was standing room only, talking about uh, TI's introduction to, to OpenLink. I don't. I don't. Mm. OpenLink is just an effort to get mainline support for TI's wireless LAN Bluetooth chipsets and supporting all the different kernels, and then a, a support channel that's open to all community members, right? Just 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 to just to anybody, just to the public. Mm-hmm. And people trying to get that code integrated in various kernels and various uh, open source platforms. I just love the way that TI keeps is working so much with getting things pushed upstream. I think that's a really positive thing. Hopefully, it all it all really gets there, and I think that we're all benefiting from that for sure. Absolutely. We also had on on display there there was a a, a mini cluster of with the equivalent of a beagle board, but uh, 49 of them. In a case, did you get, did you get to see that on the floor? I did. Yeah, I, uh, a couple of years ago at ELC, I actually had a uh, I did a, a demo at the demo night, and I ended up uh, being on the table right next to the the guy from Sandia. And uh, turns out he's he grew up in a in the next county over from where I live. So we always kind of we always see each other at that at that show. And I remember at that one he had a. a Stack of um, oh, I don't remember what they were now. They were it was some small microcontroller, but he had a stack of a cluster of those. But yeah, the the one with the forty nine OMAPs just totally blew it away. I didn't I didn't get a chance to uh, talk to him in detail about to find out what its performance was or how many. Uh, but it looked pretty awesome. I think they're still and working on like cool all the software together to really get an idea what the performance is. I know that there was. You know, when, they, when they've been speaking about it publicly, the idea is to run 10 virtual machines on every single of the, the 49 independent uh, computers. Wow. Run 10, 10, 10 VMs on each one? 10 VMs on each one. 
So 490 machines of a 490-node cluster. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> but it's supposed to they're, – they're using it to to reproduce or mimic these botnets, right? Like when, when people hack into your, your computer and, you know, get a, a small process running in the background that they use to, to perform denial of service attacks or um, – right. You know, otherwise, uh, you know, attack the the networking infrastructure. Essentially, they're trying to model that in a in a real system, and and that's why they need so many different machines in a, a very small area. Very interesting stuff. I actually worked for a company that did um, clusters of small, uh, low, kind of low powered machines. Uh, at, it was called Orion Multisystems back in the day. Yeah, back at this, the day being six or seven years ago. And we were using transmeta parts. And uh, the plan, I believe, was to switch over to ARM processors. But then the company folded. Were you working with, with transmeta while Linux was still there? Uh, I actually worked at, I worked at transmeta for about five years and then went over and, uh, and worked at Orion for about a year. Yeah, I'm just wondering if any of that time you ran into to, to Linus, if he was still. I guess at the, even even when Linus was at Transmeta, he wasn't very focused on Transmeta business. No, he was. They were doing a really interesting project that I only heard about kind of tangentially. I was working on different stuff. I played pool with him for a couple times because we had a pool table set up in the coffee room. But I was also in the process of uh, being a full-time telecommuter then, so I wasn't in the office very much. He plays much better pool than I do. But then everybody does. <laughs> Sounds like a challenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, see, to see who plays pool the worst. So you're on. We'll, we'll, we'll figure that out in, uh, the, at the next time we're, we're to show it at the same time. Yeah, that face-to-face. Sure. Yeah, we get the next uh, Yocto face-to-face. Sure. Yeah, I know. We've got one coming up at uh, LinuxCon in Vancouver. Are you you're going to make it up to that one? I haven't uh, made the plans for Vancouver yet. Okay. Um, um, that one's still up in the air. If not there, then 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 Prague at ELCE. That's that's. Oh where yeah. I think I really have to make it to to ELCE. That's just an event that um, I've I've never made it to, and I've heard too much about it in the past. And I really I'm, that's what I'm really looking forward to. Would love to make it up to Vancouver for for LinuxCon as well, but uh, just have to see how the how the judgment call falls there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the Prague conference looks like there's a lot of stuff kind of uh, stars are aligning for that particular conference. Looks pretty interesting. I think there was I'm another... amazed that there's, I was just going to say that I think they're squeezing a couple of different conferences in. The Kernel Summit is there, and the uh, LinuxCon Europe is also there, all at the same hotel during the same week. Yeah, that's what I was That's what I was going to bring up was the LinuxCon Europe. Yeah, yeah I don't know how that's going to be. I will be very interested to see how it all works together because I don't think the hotel is huge. I know that LinuxCon in the U.S. or in uh, North America gets typically seven or 800 people. Wow. That's a lot of Linux heads. That is a lot of Linux heads. I know. I was at LinuxCon in Boston last uh, last fall or last summer, and uh, I remember looking around at one of the keynotes going, I wonder what the collective brain power is in this room, if we could find some way to, to measure it. Yeah, I think that's pretty much all of these shows. Uh, I like the way uh, Jim Zimlin uh, describes the um, the value of the Linux kernel and um, how it's the greatest um, 
open source. Uh, I, I won't even try to do Jim mm-hmm. justice. But he's always great to hear to hear speak. He does have a way with words. But uh, I think you could probably measure all the, the the output of those heads just by looking at the the Linux kernel and the progress that that continues to be made um, in every single release. That's a very good point. I just had my power go out. I'm, maybe I'm uh, experiencing a little bit of uh, ESC sympathy pains. <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> there goes the, the printer turning back on. Power came back on as quick as it went off. <laughs> Is it hot there? Maybe everybody's got their air conditioning turned on at once. Not too bad. Um, yeah, I guess uh, it seemed to be a, a bit of a newsworthy thing that that uh, ESC had lost its power. Were you there when that happened? I, you know, I had just walked out of the building. I, did, I don't know whether they lost power inside the the actual conference or not, but I remember I I walked out because I had a couple of other meetings offsite, and I but in the time I walked over to my car and got into it and started driving away, I noticed that all of the stoplights were out in town, which in a town like San Jose is kind of a big deal. Because uh, people just people can hardly it seems like people can hardly drive with the stoplights telling them what to do. But uh, there was one intersection that had like five streets coming into it that uh, it, it took a while to get through that one. Well, glad you made it back. Yeah, me too. We had a couple other news items I think here. I do have a few few more. So I um, gave a, a talk at uh, at ELC as well about the. Uh, Processing and um, and processing JS. There's been quite a bit of activity in the last month on on getting uh, a processing. That's the uh, Java-based language that uh, people use to to program the Arduino mm-hmm. or wiring. I guess it is actually for the Arduino. Processing is a, a, a more display-oriented language, and then processing JS is its a JavaScript interpreta- uh, interpreted version. I was demonstrating processing JS running on the Beagle board and, and doing editing with the, an, a, an IDE called a Cloud9 um, on the Beagle board. And, um, there were several news articles in the last month of, of folks getting this uh, the Tin Can Tools trainer board, uh, working with processing and the Beagle board, uh, and just doing things that are going to make uh, programming uh, on the Beagle board um, and embedded Linux systems hopefully a lot simpler in the future for people that really aren't that into the to the low-level details of, of Linux or, or maybe even new to programming entirely. Yeah, I'd love to see stuff like that. Is there a similar uh, process, a similar project for uh, Python by any chance? Um, something like processing? I have not seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you particularly interested in Python? Just because I, I go to an electronics lab with my son twice a week, and every one of the kids there who's doing any programming, they all get directed into Python. So it seems like Python is kind of becoming the uh, Pascal of the 21st century. Wow. Don't quote me on to that. Com- to be compared to Pascal. Um, <laughs> I love I Pascal. I don't know if the technology position you want to be in. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not, but I programmed in Pascal all through high school and, and college. Maybe I just went to the wrong college. I learned C before learning Pascal, uh, so nobody could ever force me to write in Pascal. <laughs> so that just 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 never happened. And then um, mm-hmm. you can see that C is still a 
alive and strong, and, and I don't see much from, from Pascal. No, I have not seen any Pascal, certainly not uh, not in real industry. But it is interesting. Pascal was what um, students were, were pushed towards learning for, for, for several years. Mm-hmm. You say that's Python now. Um, I, I, for a while, it was it was Java. I guess maybe um, maybe Python's taken Java's place as sort of the lead. And yeah, I think that the, the when people study object-oriented programming, they still kind of end up in Java. But uh, I was, they don't usually cover that in high school, and so the uh, Python does seem to be the language of the day. I'm still I, well. I'm not still. I'm a big believer in JavaScript. I think it's the 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 unsung language that uh, is incredibly pervasive and is actually a really really nice programming language if you ignore some of the oddities of the browser itself um, mm-hmm. and the DOM. Um, I think it does objects, maybe not not perfectly, but uh, I, I like it better than than, than messing with with Java. It doesn't uh, shove objects down your throat and make you attempt to apply um, a, a model of using objects in places where it really doesn't buy you anything and it, it doesn't actually generate any sustainable abstraction. I, you see people misuse objects. Uh, all over the place, mm-hmm. um, and some in a language, a dynamic language like like JavaScript, doesn't really por- force you into the the, the same errors. I mean, think even even Python has uh, decent support for 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 objects. So I don't know why people would go towards Java to to learn that, but uh, it, it is a very formal language. Java is, and maybe that mm-hmm. that structure is something that that really uh, helps people learn. I don't know. Do you think there's a difference between a, a classical compiled language and a, a language that's primarily done with a script, an interpreted language, I guess, as far as education goes? Do I see a difference? Yeah. I mean, if you were going to go learn a new language, um, do you think you would have make would it be easier for you to pick up if it were a an interpreted language that you could see the results right away, or do you think it'd be easier to get feedback from a compiler? I think it's easier to learn in an interpreted environment. Now that said, you know, even in a compiled environment, you can get nearly instantaneous um, response back. And I think for ultimately, you're always going to need to look at the you know, generated um, machine code uh, in mm-hmm. language to really become proficient at it and to understand calling conventions and um, you know to understand how things get mapped into registers and and really. Get, how things really, really work in your educational process. So doing something compiled where you can easily, statically look at what gets generated is necessary in the educational process, but I think it can actually, I think it can come much later. My first language was BASIC. I don't mm-hmm. know what yours was. Yeah, BASIC. But BASIC went, on the Apple and on the Commodore 64. <laughs> yeah. I started the, the TRS-80 and then went to Commodore 64, and then and then Apple. Mm-hmm. I would never code in uh, in BASIC again, but I thought it helped me learn, um, you know, the basics of uh, computer programming. Yeah, I think that I I I think I got lost in BASIC because I was I was kind of self-educating and didn't really have anybody to talk to about it. I don't think I really understood how programming worked until I started working with Pascal. And using a compiler. Okay. 
What did did your basic experience help you learn Pascal? I'm sorry, you dropped there for a second. Did your experience with basic help you learn Pascal? I think it took a lot of the the initial apprehension away because I was I had something to you know I had a basis on which to to look at the different things I was learning in Pascal and say oh, okay now I can see I, I can understand why this happens because I did this once already in in a different language but doing things like even even things like linked lists are are extremely painful and basic and uh they're trivial in higher level languages. Right. I found it. I found it really useful to have done something. I'm just not sure that it really matters what that something is. And then uh, I'm. I'll be curious to see how people who are starting with things like Python, which is extremely high level, can then go deeper into thing and learn to learn to learn C from there. I think might be more of a stretch than to kind of start from the bottom up. Okay. Well, the, the the processing approach isn't really so much about, well, as far as as far as I can tell, isn't so much about the language itself because the the, the, the processing language is really just Java, mm-hmm. um, or you know C slash Java with you know, and just takes away a lot of the the setup. Um, sort of operations like you, you you don't have to worry about main. You just start coding and and it just kind of has. I use the term boilerplate, right? It mm-hmm. has essentially the common things that you would do all the time in your program already there, uh, including libraries for for getting you into um, with processing a, a drawing environment, right? Sort of like logo, mm-hmm. but it's still a you know, a bit of a richer language than than, than logo, right? With I don't know it, it, the the idea to uh, to me that you get this quick start environment um, is really valuable, no matter what the the actual individual syntax is. Yes, exactly right. Because one that's that's the main way I think to get rid of the natural apprehension that people feel when they're learning something new is as you can if you can get them in and get their hands dirty right away. Without having them break things or have to, you know, take make sure that they twiddle one little box in order to to make everything not break. Right. That's right. a really helpful thing. So this gets them right into the point where they're they're, they're immediately writing something that does something, um, rather than you know with C, you know, you have int main, open you know open C's, you know, int mm-hmm. int arg C. You know, car star star arg v, and you know, if anybody doesn't know um, programming in C, that's just complete uh, gibberish, right? You know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's random letters. <laughs> uh, so all that you'd have to understand in order to to just you know get the idea that here's a, a function that returns a value, takes arguments, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, and something else calls main and. It, it's, it's a bit much for for somebody to to learn that just wants to to print something on the screen. Yeah, I remember having difficulty figuring out which things were keywords that I couldn't mess with and which things were variables. And I think that's still I if it's if I'm working in an unfamiliar language, that still trips me up from time to time. Yeah, good old uh, syntax highlighting editor. Yeah, see, they didn't have they didn't have those back in the depths of dinosaur time when I was learning how to program. Right. 
But I think that the, the difference in that sort of environment between compiled and interpreted isn't that much. When you hit the run button, if it compiles before running or if it just begins execution, I don't right. think it, it makes really that much difference. No, not with modern, not with modern development environments. But if you have an interpreter environment with really good intro introspection, I think mm -hmm. that um, you know the ability to, to explore the the code itself while it's running, I think is is a really interesting one. Uh, and and what I really love about uh, JavaScript is that the browser is an environment that everybody can get their hands on and everybody encounters, right? And if you just want to. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, create a just start altering some things on the the screen, right? Just start up your browser and start editing a text file with your JavaScript, and and you have a programming environment. Yep. So the processing JS, I think, gets it to that level, right? Where it's rich programming interpreter environment that everybody has. Well, between and this and the talk you gave, I'm, the <laughs> no, I was saying between this and the and the talk that you gave, I'm 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 now getting more interesting interested in it. I'm I'm going to have to maybe do some stuff over the weekend. Yeah, so the little demo I gave was running an oscilloscope, right? Using the processing JavaScript language to to draw, um, you know, real time audio samples on the on in the browser window, um, and then just using um, Node.js as a JavaScript on the um, to go and capture the data. So I was sending it across mm -hmm. the socket to the browser, right? Because the browser can't get directly to the hardware. So I just write a, a trivial little server in JavaScript as well that, that pumps the data over mm -hmm. and gets you access to the to the hardware. And then uh, using a JavaScript-based uh, editor as well. So just running um, running the editor directly there on the Beetleboard. So all you'd have to do is, if you have an SD card pre-configured, just put that SD card on your BeagleBoard, and and then just you know point your browser to your BeagleBoard, and you're editing code and and displaying things and capturing data, and all sorts of stuff right away. Long, long way to go to to, to make it really production worthy, but I think that all the stuff we're trying to do around educating people around Linux is a good mm -hmm. way to to start with. I can program it, make it do stuff. And now I can, you know, dive deeper and deeper down the layers. And an oscilloscope is just an, a naturally interesting and useful thing to have, too. Yeah, you start getting, you know, relating physical, real-world activity, um, you know, to things in your your programming environment. Mm -hmm. It's the the blinking, the blinking light of uh, of I think hardware plus real programming environment, whereas, you know, a lot of people, you know, the, the, the like, hello world is just is the printf of every language, and then you've got mm -hmm. the, the blinking LED, which I think is the, the hello world of the microcontroller world, right? Right. If you get into the, you know, the, sort of the next phase where the um, you, you get a, a graphical environment as well as, a, you know, hardware interface, right? The oscilloscope is the next, the next demo. Yeah. Do you have the images up for that? Uh, I don't have an SD card image up for that right now. I do have all the source code uploaded to uh, to my uh, GitHub, and and I'm um, okay. uh, working. Hopefully, over the next week, I'll, I'll get uh, an, an O package uh, installable uh, version. So I'm gonna to to put it all in uh, Cloud Nine. I'm sorry, not in okay. Cloud Nine. Into Angstrom. Cloud Nine is the name of the editor. Um, I'm gonna to right. To put that into to, into Angstrom, hopefully over the next week. Okay, cool. So you just we'll open it, install your... it, and and go from there.
Yeah, I'll keep an eye on your blog and on the Twitter feed for that. Well, that was an awfully long tangent from our from our news. <laughs> well, you know, education is kind of the name of the game. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's one of the big motivators for both of us here, right? Um, you know. Yep. So there's the the, the articles are out the blogs on blogs about that, and, and I also saw somebody doing a um, oscilloscope in the Android environment out there with the. Uh, BeagleBoard XM and, and the, the Robot Android project, and and they created a uh, an oscilloscope to to demonstrate that environment. No kidding. Yeah, I hadn't it's, seen that. Yeah, it's 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 the it's that hello world of uh you know GUI plus hardware. Yeah. Oh, I think that would be really cool. Not that it's not cool under Angstrom, just that it's cool to have the same the same kinds of tools to compare and contrast among different distros. Yeah, although I wouldn't, uh, you know, if you were going to really compare what you would normally do in Angstrom uh, versus Android, you'd probably want to do a cute GUI um, oscilloscope rather than my, uh, you know, in-browser processing JS one. <laughs> I don't know that that's a programming environment that you'd associate you know, with Angstrom itself. No, probably not. On the other hand, it's it's very portable. Absolutely. Um, I've been looking for um, Node.js, so Node is this uh, the JavaScript interpreter, um, looking for, for ports of that on, onto different uh, uh, platforms. And it'd be interesting to find out if there was one already for, for Android. Of course, with Android, you could essentially just run the same binary because it's just a, a, a Linux kernel. It would be interesting to see if anybody's actually bundled it up into a um, into a, an Android app or APK. Yeah. Uh, I did see that somebody did one for um, iOS for the for the you know, the Apple tablets, but it requires you to uh, jailbreak them. <laughs> All the interesting stuff on iOS kind of requires a jailbreak. <laughs> Does sure seem that way. <laughs> so this is the nothing uh, in Yocto requires a jailbreak. No, that is certainly true. <laughs> Yocto actually kind of it, Yocto kind of supplies the bricks you can use to build a jail or a palace or whatever you want. So um, going to continue on the processing thing, have you done that on the XM as well, or is that just on the RevC? Oh, it was. I just did it on the XM, but it would run on the the, the RevC just fine. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, there's nothing board dependent on that. That's uh, um, the the node interpreter is something that's already in Angstrom feed in the Angstrom feeds. Uh, I see. You just anywhere you've got Angstrom running, you can just uh, you know I'll package install the um, the the Node JavaScript interpreter, and then uh, Cloud9 is an open source project. It's mostly JavaScript. There were a couple of m modules that I needed to compile, or actually just one that I needed to com actually uh, compile, and uh, and that binary is actually up in my my GitHub repository. Uh, okay. And my uh, wiki article, or sorry, not wiki, my blog post. Um, describe the, the process to go and, and and build that that one binary. Um, so that gives you Cloud9, and then the the actual demo source is all up on my my GitHub. 
account as well. Very cool. Under that, that Linux education project, because eventually I want to extend this environment into one that uh, teaches you teaches you Linux, right? Starts interacting with the yeah. kernel. Yeah, absolutely. I think the one big thing is the file I/O um, for Node Node.js doesn't seem to have iOctal support. So when you're trying to talk to device drivers, that's not incredibly convenient. But I've seen uh, some implementations of iOctal support for Node, and I'll take a look at those and see how, how I can get my I/O control or iOctal um, mm-hmm. uh, functions put in there so that I can. Um, speak to serial ports properly, and uh, you know, open device drivers properly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are you by any chance going to have a demo of this at, in a, at any upcoming conferences or fairs? I've submitted a abstract for for said type of presentation at OSCON. Uh huh. Um. But there will be a, a demo ahead of that that you know that you can go to at a Maker Fair, and um, that's the May 21st and May 22nd in San Mateo. So I'll have I'll have that demo up and running there, and if somebody wants to, the editor will be running as well. If somebody wants to come and poke at the code and um, and see what that's that's all about, uh, you know. Be able to download the code online, but you know, if you want to sit down and chat with me about uh, JavaScript coding uh, on, on Linux, I'd be more than happy to discuss it there at Maker Faire. Okay, yeah, I'll do what I can. We'll see. Uh, I know that I'll be there for at least in the morning. We, I know that Maker Faire tends to get pretty crazy in the afternoon. Cool. There's something. There's something like thirty thousand people who go to Maker Faire. Thirty thousand people. Yeah. That, that's. Yeah. <laughs> Big conference, but it's it's definitely reaching out to a to a, a, a very broad audience of people wanting to do um, you know cool things with technology that's now accessible to so many more people. And uh, yeah, it's an exciting time. Yeah, it sure is. Absolutely. There's um, so we're getting for get into to, to the upcoming events. There's another one coming up. There's this. Uh, Stomp Box Design Seminar Workshop at Stanford. Uh, so lots going out in, on out in California there, but uh, uh, that's in, in July, uh, July 18th to 22nd, and they're going to uh, give you a, a hands-on workshop where you're essentially going to build your own audio effects box out of a beagle board. That sounds very very cool. So you go out there and you. Build it to your own specifications, and, and they'll they'll teach you all about how to go do it, so that you can you can customize it, and you'll essentially end up walking out with your own uh, custom audio effects box. Very cool. By the way, my I think my computer is just about to. Is it just about to kill your phone because you just got silent? Jeff. Hello, Jeff. Well, I guess that leaves me. Um, to introduce the Greg Crow Hartman interview uh, by myself, I was at uh, the Embedded Linux Conference and the Collaboration Summit. I think I actually caught up with them at the, the Collaboration Summit uh, in San Francisco um, just a couple weeks ago, and I decided to talk to him about the state of uh, Linux on ARM and uh, his thoughts about uh, you know, why uh, ARM 
vendors uh, should be contributing to the mainline Linux kernel and and and, and what he thought about some of the uh, activities in the big war in particular uh, this um, putting the um, no Mac uh, ID uh, EEPROM on the board uh, for the BeagleBoard XM and relying instead on the ID uh, in the in the processor. So I asked him about those topics, and um, so here's that interview. All right, this is Jason Kreidner. I'm here with uh, Greg Crow Hartman of uh, Novell and OpenSUSE and uh, general um, Linux uh, hacker. Um, I don't know, Greg, actually, why don't you just, uh, there are going to be a few listeners that might not know exactly who you are, so why don't you uh, give just a two-second introduction? Sure. Um, I'm a Linux kernel developer. I maintain the uh, stable kernel releases that get released on kernel.org. Uh, I also maintain the staging tree, which is the most unstable, crazy drivers in the kernel. So it's the two extremes. I also did the driver core for the Linux uh, USB I started out in, I'm the maintainer of, and lots of other various subsystems. So I'm just a kernel developer doing a lot of different things. All right, so we were, we were discussing earlier um, one of your frustrations with the, the, the BeagleBoard design. So when we went to the uh, the XM version, we had a lot of people who pretty much always had to add an external USB hub in order to connect to, to low-speed devices and to get to a, a network device. So there's an Ethernet uh, port on that, uh, that USB hub. Um, that we, we threw onto the XM, and then to save a couple bucks and and uh, in making the the, the boards, um, we dropped the EEPROM, so there wasn't any place to put the the MAC address. And so, well, well you can just solve that in the software because there's unique ID identifiers in the in the device, and and we can hack in uh, a MAC ID uh, in there pretty easily. But uh, what 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 was your impression of that choice to solder down a USB device and not include the EEPROM? <laughs> well, soldering down the USB devices is common. That's, that's great. It's, USB is an easy bus to transport around a, a board. It's a simple number of pins. But USB requires a device to be discoverable. And the device you guys chose can also actually be plugged in at the same time because there's devices at that same time. And the USB bus topology, um, you can assign devices in random order depending on the phase of the moon and stuff. So we don't always know which one the board is your onboard device. So knowing you can't encode and just assume that the kernel will special case your one single device because you know it's this hardware and it's this thing. And um, we try and be very general and generic. It's what USB requires um, so, you can't, um, so we can handle all types of devices because the goal is to handle all, yeah, all types of devices in a universal way. Um, so how do we discover that you really don't have an EEPROM that is a valid one it was tricky. It's, it's Could we? Is there not a way that we can discover that this device doesn't have an EEPROM and use that to, to decide to, to program the MAC address? Because it would be should be the only one without an EEPROM. Or what what is the right mentality that we should be bringing to designing um, a platform that's intended for Linux developers? Well, to answer the first question, yes, we can detect it, and we do detect it now. Um, there is some controversy in how we were writing the code to do that. Um, the first couple rounds of patches were assuming that we always knew the topology of the tree and we were just picking this random device, uh, giving it some binary blob of which we just magically knew was the MAC address we needed to assign it. Um, that we objected to because they were burrowing into the USB subsystem this, this platform-specific data which USB devices traditionally have stayed away from. Um, so we solved it in a different way. There's a patch out there. It works very nicely. It was a long discussion like we do things. Um, but it works out well. So to the second question, how do you design something for um, 
anybody. It's just if you're going to use a bus, um, you make your devices discoverable, but have them contain everything you need to know about that. So if you're doing an Ethernet device, <laughs> having the MAC address, I thought was one of the requirements of having a Ethernet device, but I could be wrong. <laughs> as far well, as only for it to exist on the network. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it exists on the network. You shouldn't ship um, <laughs> devices with the same MAC address, essentially, if you have no MAC address. Um, so follow the standards. <laughs> the standards are there for a reason. USB is great for that way, but don't assume when you're doing some of these things, assume that the devices are always going to show up in the same order. Um, even PCI is not um, deterministic. PCI buses can renumber themselves. They can reorder themselves depending on your BIOS changes, depending on other devices in the system. You're not going to change once it's booting. Uh, and same thing with USBs. Just realize that your system is dynamic. Your, all systems are dynamic by the virtue that they can plug things in and discoverable buses. And that's a good thing. So Linux has been changed over the past eight years. We really, really did a lot of work on it um, to make it everything is discoverable. Everything is plug-inable. And that's the ARM community and the embedded community traditionally don't do that. They do one-off designs, and moving to that way is, is a much better way to do system design. Yeah, so this, is, this really runs counter to a lot of uh, system-on-chip development mentality where you're hardwiring in all the peripherals that are, that are in your system. Um, so this is, this is a pretty um, interesting impedance difference, impedance mismatch between uh, uh, embedded devices and, uh, and, and Linux uh, you know the view of the world from from the Linux kernel, uh, and uh, it seems like that's caused some some interesting conflicts on the mailing list. Uh, you know, we've seen some some messages from from Linus talking uh, about some some concerns he's had about the the way um, both the the way the hardware manufacturers have 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 worked together and the way that they've um, uh, approaches that they've taken to putting in device drivers for these system on chips uh, into the the Linux kernel. What what um What's the lesson that uh, that the, the uh, system on chip manufacturers like TI uh, need to be thinking about when um, when designing the hardware um, peripherals, if, even if they're on chip, not something that's externally dis you know discoverable or something that you would think about as being uh, you know something on like on the USB bus, but something that's hardwired onto the to the chip and um, and creating those drivers initially, creating that software um, with the knowledge that uh, we want support in the Linux kernel. What's, what are the things that we should be thinking about? What's the approaches we should be taking? Well, look at what, um, look at the PC. So um, I come from an embedded background, and I know very well that system on chip, you want to do a one design, these bits control these things, and then you do another design, and those bits are different because the hardware guys redesigned it and things work better that way. But make it so that you can run a universal code base without recompiling it even um, for future products. It's going to take more work on your initial design, but it'll pay off on your, uh, your designs down the road if you use discoverable buses. We have discoverable buses. USB is dirt cheap these days. Um, PCI, PCI Express, uh, there's lots of other ones even for embedded, SPI, I2C. Well, they're not, they can be discoverable, but, they're, <laughs> but it's better. It's better, than, it's better than nothing, just pure memory mapped platform devices. So try and make things discoverable. Um, for the hardware guys, really need to learn this. Um, the silicon is, should be cheap enough now to do this. Um, and then that gets back to the fact that you want to share resources, because if you make things discoverable, you can write your code once, you can use it for forever in the future. You don't have to revisit it. You don't have to do a different board spin of the specific platform code, and that's a really big problem, 
because we're seeing drivers for these different IP blocks that are showing up with different connectors to systems on a chip, and we're getting multiple drivers for the same device or originally. And that's a hard thing. I mean, one of the good things about Linux, we have all the drivers so we can see the consolidation of common areas of code and share the burden. So you can share the work. So um, I will admit, I took, I now have three drivers for USB controllers for different, same IP chip, um, but different drivers for it. It's three. And then a fourth one came in, and it's now unfair for me to make the fourth person to go clean up the three other ones. But that was, and that was my fault on my reviewing side. And that's one of the big problems with the, um, that Linus was complaining about on the um, ARM developers. They need to realize that there's a, we need to be main, um, reviewing this code and reviewing this stuff and making it more generic and saving time. It saves us time and energy and maintainability in the future because um, we want to be relevant and sell future products as well as the product today. So it needs to design in, into your schedule that time to do the work right the first time. Um, Intel and IBM have publicly stated doing this type of work saves you money in the world. And it doesn't save you initial money, it saves you long-term money. Um, they publicly stated this. This is why they're into Linux. This is why they get the code upstream. This is why they pay for maintainers to um, watch the code stream and do this kind of work. And ARM community really needs to step up and do the same type of work. And, 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 you, and you don't believe that that's, um, that's FUD that they're introducing into the market or that you know a, a, a product that has a life cycle maybe of only a couple years um, you know, does it does it still make sense in, in in that sort of environment? Does it still make sense to you know take the effort to to get to support for your IP that may not ever be used in another device again uh, into the mainline kernel, or um, you, does it still make sense to to, to make um, you know a real block description for um, you know if you you add a new peripheral that say um, you know. A, a, I can't use like a special type of Ethernet yeah. control, but it, you know, a totally separate uh, bus, a totally you know, a crypto module that uh, uh, or something. And does it still make sense um, to make that peripheral um, discoverable and self-describing in some way uh, um, that uh, you know that's suitable for for aligning in the mainline kernel? Why would I? Why do I want that code um, in the mainline? Uh, first off, you're not unique. It's not going to be just a one-time thing. You always, everybody thinks they're unique, but you're unique like everyone else. <laughs> um, so it's not unique. And um, that same system on a chip, um, in the same IP block, the same core, got sold to other people. Or you're going to use that in your next product. And you don't know that yet. I mean, you'll save yourself time over the long haul. That's what Intel has realized. It's much easier to add, even if your next IP block or your next design is just an incremental increase over the current one, you don't have to start from scratch. You can just add on a little bit. And you also benefit from the rest of the development community um, helping you there. I mean, we'll help you merge things together. We'll help you maintain what you have to work on future kernel versions. Because if you're going to take the majority of your next design is not going to be brand new. You're always going to build on your past one. But so if you're going to try and forward port to a new your drivers that you never got in this time to the next kernel, well, that was a year ago. That was um, 100,000 change sets ago. And you're going to have to do that work. Well, as if you were in the kernel, that work would have been done automatically for you. You can start and work on the stuff that you really do new. You don't have to do on the stuff that you did past for your past project. So it will save you long-term time and money. Well, so even if I was doing something like an interrupt controller or a timer or something that that's fairly straightforward design, and I can make a design really simple for my system, I, you know, 
saying that I should somehow look at the Linux kernel drivers first and try to find something that, that you know, make sure to include some hardware that sort of matches or to, to, to follow a pattern where, you know, I can get a description of that device. I mean, what, what's the process that, you know, me as a, if I was a, a hardware designer, I should think about before putting in, um, you know, a new component into my, into my chip? Well, yeah, it'd be, it'd be wonderful if you could look at existing examples and go from there, but you're usually not. You're going off to the experience and design experience of what you've done in the past. So take those and, and build with it, but listen to the kernel people. Um, I publicly stated the other day that Intel has a meeting where they listen to the kernel people. They get their people in and they do that. ARM does that as well. Um, but more and more companies need to pay attention to the software side as far as the hardware designers because we do work with this. I mean, the embedded guys, we know the hardware as well. We don't know how to design the hardware like you do, um, but we know how it works and we know how you can do things to make our lives easier. Now, it's sometimes cheaper to do things in hardware because you've got the bill of materials and stuff like that. And um, I understand the cost-cutting issues are involved there, but you also have to look at your long-term maintenance for your survival as a company to have your, your developers have this one-time cost for every single device you make in the future um, will be increased and will add on. So you can pay, just pay attention. It's, a, it's, a entire, it's an ecosystem. We're both working together. Don't don't ignore it. <laughs> I mean, we don't ignore what you guys do. <laughs> so um, do that. Try and do that. Okay. So and um, so, what is a project like the the BeagleBoard project that that tries to put uh, you know, an affordable ARM platform into a lot of people's hands so that they can um, do open source software development? On it? What sort of impact does that have on uh, kernel development and, uh, and and moving the state of a of an of an architecture forward? I mean, does it does it matter to you? Um, does it uh, um, you know, just having a bunch of, uh, you know, maker do-it-yourself, um, you know, hackers, you know, spending time on a on a on a platform. Does that does that matter to the Linux kernel? And does that matter to um, ARM developers that that might want to use the Linux kernel? Um, I think so. Yes. I mean, the more people that use your platform, the better. Um you, you never know who those people, what those people are going to do in the future. You can have college students I've seen use Beagle boards in the university because it's cheap for them to get. They build science fair projects, they build school projects, and then they go off and work at a company, somebody else, and they can take that experience, and then that, that might turn into a design win for that those chips on there because they have experience doing that, they know what they've done, and um, you also get experience and feedback from other people using your platform as to what to do better next time and how to work things better. And also some of those people will take your code and help maintain it for you. I mean, I've always joked that um, I will write code for hardware. <laughs> so, um, and I will make, but I also make sure the hardware continues to work. The rate of change of the Linux kernel is cra crazy, crazy fast. Um, doing these stable kernel releases, I do try and boot and build on existing hardware, a Beagle board I used to have in my system, I don't now. I well, I'll, I'll fix that yeah. really quick. I have a Panda board. <laughs> Panda board, although, does not have everything in mainline, so it's almost there, I think. Um, I'll make sure it works. I'll make sure the existing code doesn't break, so that when, if you as a system developer want to make these chips and sell them to people, you know that the main, that this code is not going to break and it will work, which is good for you as that. Um, giving hardware away or at a cheaper price, um, Somebody did a study, I think it was HP, when they seeded the community with the um, PA Risk chips yeah. and systems, and they they come publicly came and stated, um, at the best, one third of those devices were used, and they got feedback from it, and it it worked. Um, but the third of the people that did that was amazing. It, it's you just got extra engineers, 
outside your company working on things, helping make it better, and it paid for itself in spades. And so it's a really good um, write-up of how it all works. So doing a beagle board, I thought was a, a brilliant idea. You got it into college students, you got it into the maker community, and you became more popular. It, it made your platform more approachable, easier to understand, easier to use, and, and it forced you to um, do things to make that easy. Um, doing system design and giving it to engineers also doesn't make for the easiest system design at times. And that made you guys do this work. And I, I think it paid off. I hope it paid off. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Great. So just to, just to close, do you have any comments for, for, for people in the, the Beagle community who are, who are hacking with the Beagle or for, the, for folks like me that are, that are trying to continue to, to maintain that community and maintain support for that platform? Do you have any closing advice for us? Uh, keep it up. <laughs> you guys are doing a great job. Um, no, I, I just wish you the best. I'm, I'm glad that you're part of the community. Um, you help Linux out. I like seeing the Linux community, Linux run everywhere. That's my goal, is to make Linux succeed. And this is wonderful to see Linux succeed in areas that I would have never imagined. I've seen Beagle Wars run in things I would have never imagined Linux. So I'm very happy. All right. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Greg. So that does it for BeagleCast. Um, we'll be looking for your questions and suggestions. Hopefully to be included in the next week's BeagleCast. And have a great week. <laughs>